Okay, uh, welcome back to Firewalk. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, this week, we're doing three episodes all around our predictions for 2023. This one is me and Hugo. And then, Hugo, why don't you give us the lineup for the rest of the week? Yeah, so on, on Tuesday, we're doing sort of uh, politics and democracy. Um, and on Thursday, we're doing tech and culture. And it's all it's all um, uh, people from the Tusk team uh, across the whole spectrum of, of, of stuff that they do. Um, including like Julie from the bookstore and Ari um, LaFell, who has this new venture that he's working on uh, for, for Bradley. So there's a there's a, a bunch of cool stuff coming this week. Today, it's it's going to be uh, Bradley on sort of policy and tech for 2023. Um, but look for those other episodes uh, on Tuesday and Thursday. Yeah, and I should mention we are still not recording from PNT Network because I still have COVID. But if you need holiday gifts, if you need books, tchotchkes, whatever it is, um, please check us out, 180 Orchard Street between Houston and Stanton in Manhattan. Awesome. All right, Bradley, let's let's jump right into it. Um, uh, I should mention that you 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 published a piece um, in Fortune that has um, some of this some of this material. We'll obviously be expanding on it a bit, yeah. um, but but I think the the most sort of best way to go about it is just sector by sector. You know, okay. so so let's 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 start with with uh, with healthcare, which is obviously a big focus of of Tusk Ventures and a, and a personal sort of passion of yours as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, th- I think the, to me, at least what, what I wrote in the Fortune piece, although we could talk about other pieces too, is there's going to be this tension between um, the work that we and others are doing on teleabortion and then the impact that might have on telemedicine regulation more broadly. Um, and on top of that, we've already seen um, Cerebral, which is a mental health uh, telemedicine company that prescribes uh, Adderall and ADHD medication. Uh, we saw the DEA yesterday put out a release about cracking down on prescriptions that are not proper online. So um, it's going to be a year where whether it's self-inflicted because of bad actors within the telemedicine space or, quite frankly, people like us at Mayday using telemedicine to give women in red states access to abortion, but that obviously probably then casting aspersions on the sector overall in those states. Um, it, it may be a tough year from a regulatory standpoint. So what, explain that a little bit. What does that mean, a tough year? So, so state legislatures are going to be passing stuff that makes it more difficult uh, for doctors to offer telemedicine services? or what, what Well, they're, they're, they're certainly going to pass laws in a lot of red states. South Carolina is doing it. We saw the beginnings of it in Texas this week that will increase penalties and make it explicitly illegal to mail women in that state uh, abortion medication. Now, it's very unclear because the FDA says these are legal drugs and states don't have the right to ban them, um, but the states say that they do. This will ultimately end up in the courts. Supreme Court, you have to guess that in long term, the pro-life position prevails because of the makeup of the court, but that usually takes a couple of years. So in the interim, uh, we are going to, at Mayday Health, continue to help women access the medication that they need. And what you'll see is in the blue states, and we're working on this already, um, shield laws being passed to protect doctors and medical professionals from civil and criminal litigation from the states that ban it. Um, And then in the states that do ban it, you'll see further and further bans and penalties to try to scare people away from doing it. Now, from a sort of investment standpoint, how big a issue is this kind of red state resistance is this a is this a major um sort of inhibitor of growth is it is it long term like well, how do you see it startups that provide abortion services are not particularly viable investments in the first place right when, when you invest in a startup you want a product that people are going to use 
all day, you know, Facebook, Uber, you know, DoorDash, whatever it is. Um, people have an abortion, some population, some percentage of the population and only half of that uh, has an abortion once, maybe twice generally. So it's a pretty low frequency event. So it, that specific sector is not a good startup, which is why it's really being done more on the nonprofit side as well. But look, the risk would be between um, the DEA cracking down on startups prescribing uh, you know, controlled medications and red states wanting to further punish um, anyone attempting to prescribe abortion medication, you know, you, you could see new restrictions and challenges pop up both in states and federally. Okay. Let's move on to the gig economy. Now, the, the needle is sort of moving in, in the direction of, of, um, of, of, of gig workers uh, needing to be classified as full-time employees. Um, that creates a, a lot of additional costs for those, uh, for those companies. What's the, what's the state of play going into 2023? Yeah, so uh, Biden was elected with very strong support from labor. He's always been a union guy. And part of his sort of payback to the unions for helping elect him is a rule that he and his labor secretary, Marty Walsh, proposed recently that would effectively say that most gig economy workers are actually full-time employees and not independent contractors. Um, This is still really an issue that is determined by states. So it's not dispositive, but it does give states who want to say that Uber drivers or Instacart delivery people or DoorDash delivery people or whatever it is are now W-2 instead of 1099. It gives them more firepower to do so. Um, I think we'll see efforts to try to stop it. We'll see uh, litigation from the companies. I think the House Republicans will throw some stuff at it. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, I I would imagine if they want to push it through the rulemaking process, they can. Um, And that does, to a certain extent, risk the operating costs of sharing economy companies going up. They typically say 20 percent. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. But yeah, and what it may mean is is some of them don't make it. And as, as I've urged before on the podcast, I really do believe that the best thing Uber could do is to go W-2 simply because right now as independent contractors, if you're a ride-sharing driver, you try for every single platform because you just want to maximize your opportunities. If you're a W-2 employee and you're working, you have to pick. I work for Uber. I work for Lyft. Um, the most of the people will make their choice based on market share, which is at least two to one Uber. So most drivers shift over. And then the network effect can work in reverse as well. So if you're a Lyft customer, you're looking for a ride, but two-thirds of the drivers just left the platform, it's going to take you a lot longer to get the car. Instead of having to wait four minutes, you're waiting 17 minutes, and you say, you know what, screw it, I'll take an Uber. Um, and then the drivers who are remaining on Lyft see less and less traffic, so they shift over and eventually puts Lyft out of business entirely, which is important because the unit economics of ride sharing are still not particularly Great. Um, and one of the reasons why is that you've got these two competitors constantly subsidizing drivers and riders to try to get more business. Um, Uber could never buy Lyft legally. The FTC wouldn't allow it. But if it embraces W-2 and Lyft happens to go out of business as a result, so be it. So we've talked about that a couple of times. Do you actually see Uber doing that? No, I, I think the original leadership, you know, under Travis Kalanick, certainly might have considered that. And Travis and I have talked about this a little bit. The current leadership, um, has done what the board wanted to do, which was take down the temperature a lot, right? They are a steady, functional bureaucracy now. Um, but do you see a lot of innovation coming out of Uber? No, it's just a basic company now. Right. Let's move to crypto and, and the sort of fintech space as well. It's hard to think of a industry that had a tougher 2022 than crypto. 
Um, is this just going to continue into uh, into 2023? Is it just going to continue to be a bloodbath? Do you see what, what's that old saying? It's, it's, hard, it's hard to know because keep in mind, crypto is um, an asset class that generally speaking doesn't have that much intrinsic value. So it's really driven by momentum, right? So if there's a bad crop season, a bad harvest, then commodity prices might go up um, because there's less supply of wheat or grain or whatever it might be. In this case, you know, it, it's just kind of whatever they, whatever they mint, whatever tokens that they mine and mint. So um, it doesn't really have those same sort of limitations, which is part of the value, but also part of the risk. So look, I do think that crypto regulation is coming. I think we've seen that, those signs coming out of the SEC for a while. There was bipartisan legislation introduced in the U.S. Senate to make the CFTC the crypto regulator. I think in the wake of FTX, that's not likely to happen. But I think one positive development for crypto has been that the Sam Bankman-Fried thing has gotten so crazy that actually it stops being about here are the abuses and problems with crypto and just here is this, you know, criminal mastermind or lunatic who did these terrible things. And it becomes about him and FTX personally, not about the sector broadly. Um, so we will see some regulation. And by the way, the legitimate players in the space have been asking for regulation for a long time because they just want to know the rules of the road. And so I think we might see it. And generally speaking, in a divided Congress and White House, where we have a Republican House, a Democratic Senate, Democratic White House, they're not going to get much done because there are very few points of agreement. But big tech regulation, whether it's antitrust, privacy, Section 230, crypto, those are places where there might be opportunity. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. You ready, Bradley? Yeah. Um, does Sam Bankman-Fried get convicted? Uh, this is not going to happen in 2023. And if so, how long a prison sentence does he get? He definitely gets convicted. Um, Elizabeth Holmes got 11 years, so I think the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Damian Williams, is now going to want to try to beat that number. So I think he's looking at like 20 years in jail. I also think this is a shot this guy flees, right, uh, which is why they're trying to not, not give him bail, just keep him in jail because he is a flight risk and who knows how much money he has stashed around the world. Um, so a lot of things could happen here. Um, you know. But if I had to guess, he will be convicted. Um, and then you get to questions of how many other people at FTX get convicted. What about his parents? They seem like these very sympathetic figures, but now there's a counter movement saying these people benefited financially significantly from FTX. They're law professors at Stanford. They clearly should have known better and should have acted on it or at least not personally benefited from it. So do his parents get indicted? Um, where does it go from here? I think we'll still see. It's funny. I, I it's it's um, I understand why people are angry and, and throwing shit at everybody, but um, I, it feels kind of sad to me, <laughs> like like the parents, the whole family. Oh, uh, you know, look. I, on one hand, uh, of course, you know, every parent wants to do what's best for their kid, and may be willing to break the law if they have to to benefit their kid. But keep in mind, you know, it wasn't like they needed to make this sort of really difficult Faustian bargain in order to preserve their son's life. They just said, hey, we're going to go along with him making billions and billions of dollars in a way that starts to be completely fraudulent and illegal. I don't know how much they knew or not, but you know, they're not walking into this thing blind. You can't praise them for being these brilliant law professors and then say they had you know, no knowledge of anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, next up is transportation. So it feels like autonomous vehicles have been promised for is it almost a decade. I mean, it just feels like it's been around yeah. and and 
and yet, are we any closer to, to this actually no. being on the streets? In well, a we're, way? we're closer in two ways and not in the third. So the ways that we're closer is the technology does keep advancing. Um, level five autonomy, which is sort of true automated vehicles, is still not here yet in my view, but we're getting closer to it. Um, you do see cities and states coming up with regulatory frameworks for autonomous driving. So that's good and necessary. Um, but the problem is, in order for cars or trucks to autonomously cross state lines, you need federal guidelines and rules as well, whether it's you know rules out of the DOT or legislation out of Congress. And there's been nothing for years and years and years. Um, you know, the assumption during the Trump uh, era was that because the Teamsters were uh, afraid of automated trucking, they held everything up. That kind of makes sense. The typical Trump voter probably is a Teamster. Um, but when Pete Buttigieg became Transportation Secretary, the thought was, here is this guy who ran a whole presidential campaign based on innovation and future and progress. And of course, he would want to embrace this and move it forward. And he hasn't done anything either. Um, and one point, I don't know if I made it on a, uh, your this podcast or someone else's or in a column, but I think it's a bad idea to put... Um, former presidential rivals into your cabinet. I know it worked really well for Lincoln, but a guy like Buttigieg, instead of just being incentivized to do the most good that he could do as transportation secretary, he's only thinking about 2028, 2032, um, which means you know everything is a political hedge and nothing is done for its own benefit. Um, if I'm the president, I don't want cabinet members like that. I want cabinet members who are actually getting shit done. But let me let's 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 focus on Buddha Judge for one second. Doesn't he need to put some points on the board? I mean, what has he done? Like, if he is thinking about twenty twenty eight or twenty thirty two or whatever it is, what what what's what's the what's he done to advance his cause in that he, regard? He would maybe argue that he helped solve some of the supply chain issues. Um, that's really the only thing he's been out there on that seems particularly meaningful, other than personal issues around paternity leave or, or whatever else. Um, but no, not not much. Uh, I would not say that it, let's say that Biden breaks a hip today and he can't run for re-election. I don't think, you know, the Washington insiders would have Buttigieg as a top candidate and maybe he is, um, but I don't know that he's really done anything to advance his candidacy uh, among the general. I think voters. he was like number one on of sort of Biden replacements on Washington Post list. Yeah, but that is the awesome. most insider of all documents. And as we've talked about before on this podcast, um, smart people who like politics tend to be the worst at predicting all of this stuff because we can say on paper, well, Buttigieg is from the Midwest and he's gay and he was in the military and now he's in the cabinet. So he'll pick up this constituency and that constituency, this one, and we mix and match and make it all work on paper. And the reality is the candidate that wins is the candidate that resonates emotionally with the voters. We saw that with Trump. We saw that with Obama. We saw that with Bill Clinton. Even in many ways, we saw that with Biden in that in that case, because COVID hit and it was scary, a steady hand was emotionally what the voters wanted. And that was Biden. So, you know, we could sit here and make all the predictions we want um, and, and sort of make all the arguments we want why this presidential candidate should be number one on the Washington Post list and this one should be number seven. But the truth is nobody fucking knows. Yeah. I was going to ask you about DeSantis, but then you just said nobody knows, so let's not even talk about it. Okay. <laughs> um, drugs. Um, the uh, more precisely, really cannabis. Um, the Biden administration is making some pretty yeah. significant moves um, in, towards legalization of cannabis. What's what's going on? What's yeah, I mean, they're doing what really needs to be done, which is um, cannabis has been legalized in something like you know well over thirty states. It's recreational, and I think well over twenty states at this point. Um, it is a normal facet of life in, in most of this country, and yet the DEA has different schedules, which is basically 
how bad a drug is and all the penalties associated with being caught with it or involved with it. Schedule one is the toughest. Cannabis still remains on schedule one up there with heroin and cocaine and meth and everything else. Clearly, there's a massive disconnect between the states and the federal government on this one. Biden, in recognizing that, began the process of moving cannabis off of Schedule 1. Why this is really significant is once that happens, the players in the industry going from go from kind of niche companies to, I think, just the giant consumer brands. Um, once that you can legally work on this stuff, I don't see any reason why a Unilever, a Kraft, a Johnson & Johnson, a Philip Morris, an Anheuser-Busch, wouldn't get in the game. And then from a startup standpoint, one reason why we've never made an investment in a cannabis company is because I don't really see how all these companies who currently exist, they're traded on the Canadian stock market. I don't see how they survive once the big players get into the game. And so I think it will really change the entire nature uh, of cannabis, turning it into a normal consumer product. Uh, Infrastructure. We are on the cusp of a clean tech boom. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to the Biden administration. What, yeah. what do you think this does to the sort of venture space in in uh, in, in, in? Yeah, that? it's a good question. First of all, I would say that this is probably the most impressive thing that Biden has done um, in that he was able to really generate hundreds of billions of dollars in new funding for climate tech development, for electric vehicle um, increases, everything else um, was really necessary in between the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, they got everything in there. So, so that's, I think, really good job by them. Uh, what it means from an investment standpoint is there's now all of this new money flooding into the system and some certainty because the money is guaranteed for a period of 10 years. So you can make an investment, not having to worry about whether or not the funds get reappropriated the following session. So that's all really good. With that said, climate tech is still really hard because so much of it is variable based on the technology itself and not on consumer behavior. And you can take a startup that is selling something and you can say, okay, if we have the right product, the right marketing, the right this, the right that, we have an X percent chance of succeeding. With climate tests, tech, there are so many more variables that I think it's still a difficult investment for a lot of VCs to make, even within our own team. You know, Jordan, I think, is still skeptical on it, whereas Bob Greenlee is pretty bullish. So, you know, we have looked at climate deals before. We'll continue to look at them. But I don't think you'll see a sea change in investing. Did did Washington learn anything from like the whole cylinder debacle? Like is is the are the new sort of ideas um, substantially uh, put a distance between those no, concepts? I mean, or is it- yes, you know, because the problem is this. At the end of the day, the innovation has to come from the private sector, right? And just as we saw with, with PPE, when hundreds of billions of dollars are flowing into something, there's going to be a certain amount of fraud, right? And uh, where Obama really got burned is the company that was fraudulent was the one that he embraced and highlighted and really made a big deal about. So it was particularly embarrassing for him. But yeah, in the in, the, in all of the companies over the next 10 years, they're going to get money for you know, climate tech type projects, will some of them be fraudulent? Absolutely. That's just, you know, part of life. Um, what does the general startup ecosystem feel like going into going into 2023? It's pretty bleak. Um, I think that valuations uh, have fallen or are remaining lower. I think that most deals are not really getting done. We're seeing almost no liquidity events, so very few IPOs. Not much M&A. A lot of the new funding rounds for startups are inside rounds from previous and existing investors who are just trying to keep the company afloat and alive. Um, And so the boom of investing that we saw over the last couple of years 
has slowed considerably. With that said, you know, at least from our perspective, that creates opportunity, right? Because smart founders with good ideas come along all of the time and they don't go away just because we're in a recession. Look, Uber and Airbnb were both created in 2008, which is one of the worst years of recession, certainly in the last you know, 50 or 100 years. So um, I think really good companies will still be created in 2022. And, you know, we want to invest in them. And so we've been pretty aggressive. You know, we did three deals uh, in October, November, um, which is just a much faster pace than most funds because we have money and we have theses. And when the founder can meet that, those ideas, we're going to invest. What about the sort of regulatory interaction with startups, like the sort of competition between cities and states to you know, uh, have companies locate there? Is that, is yeah, that- there'll, really- there'll be less of that, right? So this this sort of everyone, you know, throwing everything they could at Amazon to get to set up their second headquarters there. States, you know, saying they'll change their name to Amazon, whatever else. Um, you know, you're not going to see as much of that, but that's just because the shine of big tech has really faded. Look, from call it 2006, seven till 2018, 19, Google, Facebook, Airbnb, Uber, Apple, all these companies other than Apple and Microsoft, which have been there for a while, they were just seen as these sort of cool, interesting, almost delightful new companies because they were giving us things that we didn't have before, right, that are really great. You know, I can get any piece of information I want with a touch of a button. I can reach a billion people through, you know, my Facebook page. I can get a car to come get me by touching one thing on my phone. And so we were pretty delighted about that. These companies succeeded. They grew and grew and grew. They are now the biggest companies in the world. And once a company is a really big company, no one really likes them anymore. They become like, you know, the phone company or whatever else. So, look, are there a few like Apple that continue to have high popularity? Yes. But generally speaking, once a company goes from being an interesting upstart to an entrenched interest, you know, that that doesn't really want competition, the consumer views around that change. What's the tech scene that will stand out in 2023? Is it is it New York, Boston, Miami, Austin, Bay Area? I, I don't think it's it's interesting. So I, I don't think it's Miami because Suarez, who's the mayor of Miami, made a, a huge bet on crypto. It was all about sort of flash and uh, kind of you know the Miami scene. And I think the moment that we're in really doesn't doesn't call for that, right? So, you know, you could see if it's Boston, it's because there's a boom in biotech. You know, we are seeing some really significant, the MNRI technology that was developed for COVID seems to have real promise for cancer vaccines as well, um, that, that Boston is very heavy in that area. Um, I don't think it will be LA because I think that the LA companies like Bird um, that were doing really well are not nearly successful right now. And I think the LA vibe, just like Miami, is not necessarily right for it. Um, Austin is interesting, right? They have attracted a tremendous amount of investment, a tremendous number of startups. Taxes are lower or non-existent. Uh, regulation is much less. And so startups there should thrive. We will see if they do. What they don't have is the same knowledge base and supply of talented engineers Silicon Valley has. Now, they're, they're building that. And obviously, the University of Texas is a good thing for the startup ecosystem there. Um, And then in New York, look, I think the good news is we have a mayor that really does embrace tech and really likes it. You know, we had 12 years of Mike Bloomberg, who is a tech entrepreneur, coming up with all kinds of policies and ideas to build a tech sector in New York. He succeeded at doing that. He had eight years of Bill de Blasio, who still carries a flip phone and considers himself proudly to be a Luddite. And he did everything he could to drive tech jobs out of our city. So now Eric Adams, does he have the expertise of a Mike Bloomberg and Mike's team in terms of how do you 
build a tech sector? No, of course not. Um, but they certainly have the right attitude about it. All right. Final question. Big tech. Is this the year or is 2023 a year that, that the antitrust stuff really uh, yeah. comes down hard on them? What's what's your outlook for that? I predict, yeah. I mean, look, it certainly comes down hard in the sense of is the FTC aggressively file op- opposing potential mergers and filing prosecutions? Yes. Lena Khan, the chair of the uh, FTC, is, is very aggressive. They just said that they're going to try to block the Microsoft Activision, Activision acquisition. That's a $66 billion acquisition. Um, so they're going to be saying no to a lot of stuff. And then the question is, does legislation make its way through Congress that further strengthens the FTC's jurisdiction, gives them more resources, more money, uh, and more leeway to, to act? Um, there's bipartisan legislation that has passed House and Senate Judiciary. There was an article in the paper today about Chuck Grassley, who's the ranking member uh, in the minority on Senate Judiciary calling on Biden to push this issue so they can try to get it done. So I do think we have bipartisan support. And I think for as long as big tech seen, is seen as unpopular, it is politically palatable for something like this to happen. So yeah, I'll predict that it does happen in 2023. All right, Bradley, that's, that wraps up uh, this episode. And, and I just want to remind listeners, uh, Tuesday, uh, we have the sort of politics and democracy focus. Um, Thursday, we have tech and culture. Um, and then Bradley and I will be back in PT uh, in January. Um, and we're excited to start a new 2023 on the podcast. And, uh, and hopefully it'll be a big year for, for us and for you. Yep. Happy New Year, everyone.